Chad White is the Head of Research at Oracle Customer Experience Marketing Consulting, and he's been writing a lot recently about coronavirus and the impact that it has on the email ecosystem. In this conversation, Chad shares some gems from what he's seeing right now to lots of ideas on what might happen next. This is Email Talk, the podcast for email geeks by email geeks about how to be a better email geek. I'm Elliot Ross from Action Rocket and Taxi for Email, and I'm your host. Cool. So, Chad, welcome. Thanks for having me, Alec. So, to get started, what I want to know is three things about you, but one of them is a lie. So, give me give me three things that are about Chad White. Absolutely. So, I think a lot of people know me because of my books, uh, Email Marketing Rules, which is now... Uh, in, in all good bookstores and online. In, in all the good bookstores. <laughs> so now it's third edition, which is awesome. So, uh, I wanted to, to kind of um, do a theme... Okay. around that. So here, here are my three things. So first, I previously worked for two book publishers. Okay. Second, the first book I ever wrote was about formalist poetry. <laughs> and my third thing is the book I'm currently writing is about bonsai. <laughs> okay. Bonsai, as in the trees? Or is that... Yeah, as in the trees. Awesome. I'm just going to write those down. I'm going to get my crack team of researchers to go and Find that out. Cool. Well, let's. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that later on. I'm intrigued about those. <laughs> cool. Um, so um, I'm kind of asking everyone this, but I'm, I'm super intrigued by it. So, like, no one starts off in email, right? Like, everyone is. Uh, they set out doing other things. They study all sorts of things. I think that's what makes our channel great. To be honest, there isn't a kind of email course that you can study at university or whatever, and everyone kind of comes at it with completely different backgrounds and directions. So. What is your sort of email origin story? Yeah, definitely everyone falls into email. <laughs> like, it is not a destination for people. It's just... Uh, uh, let's say it chooses you. <laughs> yes, it definitely it chooses you. And it, and it tends not to let go very easily uh, <laughs> for what it's worth. So, so my origin story goes back... Uh, so, like back to the early 2000s. So uh, in my prior life, I was a journalist. I worked for Condé Nast and Dow Jones for a number of years. Okay. And my beat primarily was retail and technology, and in particular, the intersection of those two. So how retailers use technology in their businesses. So a lot of like point of sale and uh, CRM systems and things like that. And one of the ways that we used to, to get leads uh, was by signing up for the email programs of all the major retailers. And so they would they would like announce when they you know released something new or had some new functionality or whatever it be, and so we'd use that to then follow up with those those retailers to write stories. And the thing that uh, the thing that really propelled me into into to email as you sort of now know me was that in 2005, my brother um, started a blog and. He was showing it to me, and it was like a you know, it's a personal blog. Mm. And you know, being the competitive brother that I am, I was like, well, you know, if my brother can start a blog, <laughs> I can certainly start a blog. And I started to think, like, well, hey, what will my blog be about? I knew he didn't want it to be like a personal blog. It, was, it has to be about a thing. And I was like, oh well, you know, I'm subscribed to to all these these emails. Like, maybe I could amp that up and like, you know, just write about what 
you know, retailers are sending. And so I did. So in 2006, I started the, the retail email blog and, you know, over the next six and a half years, published over 3,000 blog posts wow. <laughs> about what retailers were sending out. I remember and, that. Uh, I remember yeah, it being and, like, super thorough. Like, there's so much good stuff on it, especially at a time when no one was really writing about email. You know, even even the landscape we have now where everyone's writing stuff, that, that just, just wasn't there then. Like, yeah, that was pretty much the, the one email blog. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun, but what I sort of didn't um, foresee is like when I started – uh, email frequencies were pretty modest. <laughs> by the time, like six years later, uh, email frequency had like, I think it like more than doubled. Um, and so like it, it became definitely like a lot of work uh, for sure. Uh, but I learned a ton. I mean, it's mm. sort of like the, um, the, you know, the 10,000 hours idea. Right, yeah. um, you know, if you see uh, I think during that time, I saw hundreds of thousands of emails, and it really does, you know, give you a lot of ideas when you see that many emails and you're looking at them critically, you know, and what are they about and how are they phrasing things and what sort of, um, you know, messaging are they using and, you know, when you do that over and over again, it gives you a lot of ideas and really gives you a strong sense of like what the crowd wisdom is mm. on a variety of topics and. So it was because I was writing that blog that uh, I got connected with Jeannie Mullen, who was the founder of the Email Experience Council. Uh, I joined uh, that group as employee number three and then joined the DMA when they acquired the EC. And that was really my entry point formally into the email industry. And I've never looked back. And I think it's amazing you know, yeah. for me as a former journalist I love how dynamic our industry is and how it's constantly changing and there's new things to explore. So um, for me, it's been a perfect fit. So anyway, that's my email origin story. <laughs> that's really interesting. I think that there's a bit of a kind of wave that you've managed to ride there as well. In the, like if you look at what journalism now is, there is obviously still the discipline of newspaper journalism, but there's so much of content marketing and sort of general content that happens from a business perspective that isn't quite newspaper type stuff, that discipline wasn't there t 20 years ago either. You know, so even the idea of blogging about, you know, our discipline in email is, uh, is ahead of its time, really. If you see what people are doing now, like that's pretty much the way that you get attention as a, as a marketer is writing about stuff, right? Yeah, certainly the world of journalism has changed radically yeah. from, <laughs> from when I was in it, for sure. Mm. Um and then, and that's you know, and I think universally, like that's to our detriment as a society. Yeah. Um, but on the on the plus side, uh, what's happened on sort of the content marketing side, um, and how that has grown has been a huge benefit mm. uh, for society. So I'm I'm uh, I'm very grateful to be a part of that movement, yeah, uh, yeah. which I do think adds a ton of value. So that, that's been exciting. Certainly lots of big changes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a, the massive change in journalism is a, would be a good discussion at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot to dig into there. And yeah, I guess to talk about current issues, I suppose, at the moment, and one of the reasons I want to talk to you is, um, so your, your work at the moment is at Oracle working on the, is it the strategy team? So I'm, I'm the head of research for Oracle's CX marketing consulting. So we're a group of more than 500 digital marketing experts within 
Oracle. <laughs> like when people talk about like, you know, oh, we're in a group of 500 people, that's, I'm, um, because obviously our company is so small. I'm like, that's a massive company in its own. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, our department is 500 people. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's just a tiny little uh, part of, of Oracle. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a, definitely a big beast to, to work out. It must be must be fun and games. Um, <laughs> in your work there, so one of the things that I saw recently, you published this blog post about kind of how things are, how, how the coronavirus and the, the general impact of that in 2020 is working out for marketers and, and i thought that was a really interesting discussion to have not least because a lot of the content that has been out there is is almost without evidence but there's kind of been like oh marketers should do this and it's kind of okay we got that because that's what marketers should do anyway but what i was interested in that you've been doing is really digging into you know what has that literally been happening and, and analyzing stuff so obviously like lots of people's lives have changed at this point right not just outside you know not, not in the marketing world but also outside as well some people have you know unfortunately been you know their health has been affected by it but also the family and, and that kind of thing but also it has changed how the audience perhaps is interacting with marketing and, and their needs in general have changed so if you put yourself in the place of a marketer sitting there going oh my god i don't know what's happening with our email right now have you seen any kind of trends or anything that's changing in terms of how people are interacting with email like you know are they opening more are they opening less are they the kind of open rates click rates conversions what's happening there sure yeah no we uh we looked at uh a pretty large panel of some of our consulting clients performance data to to kind of glean uh, what's going on sort of at, you know, at a high level. But I did want to point out before I dive into some of those findings that um, that the spectrum is like really vast, right? Like there are companies uh, like in travel and hospitality that are having serious, serious disruptions to their businesses and therefore their email marketing programs, you know, yeah. as well. Um, and then there are companies that are doing like pretty good, right? A lot of uh, you know digital um, entertainment companies and such uh, that are, are faring quite well. So yeah, I guess there's probably there's maybe even a third. Like there's kind of there's people who their business is literally on pause right now or struggling, and then there's people who are kind of making do, and then there's people who are actually actively doing well. I suppose. Yeah, which there are some businesses like that for sure. So. Um, yeah, there really is like this huge spectrum, but right, so, so with that caveat, um, there, there are a few things that we were seeing across our panel data. And so, first of all, we've seen that open times have shifted and that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's tons of people who their like morning routines have been completely blown up or their work routines, right. uh, because they're maybe furloughed or yeah. employed now where their work routine is completely uh, destroyed. So uh, it only makes sense that those patterns of open times would, would be different. Um, I don't have a concrete way to say what you should do to adjust, but definitely take this as a call to action to do some testing, to look at your open data and see how it's changing. Um, you know, I think historically uh, people have been very hesitant to like send on weekends, even though weekends tend to do pretty well for certainly a lot of B2C brands. Um, 
again, I don't have data to back this up, but I would definitely encourage people to test into the weekend now, since again, weekends are kind of like weekdays for the <laughs> yeah, most part for a lot it, of people. It probably depends on the person, right? You know, some people every day is a Saturday or a Sunday right now, and then yes. other people, it's every day is a work day. For sure. <laughs> so yeah, it really yes. depends. It it really depends, and. So in reg- the other thing I would say in regards to open times is that uh, if you are using send time optimization or thinking of using send time optimization, uh, that is definitely a technology to explore. We find that um, even if you have, like there's a lag in collecting this data. So, um, you know, as the pandemic shifts behaviors, there's going to be a lag in, in how uh, time optimization is going to adjust for an individual subscriber. But regardless, it's still going to be better than just some time that you pick. Um, it's still going to be better. Uh, but I think I think it was it was helpful to have time optimization in place going into this. I think it will be vital having it on the way out because on the way out is going to be so much more chaotic than going in right everything on the on the front end happened pretty quickly and although it was you know uncoordinated it still all happened around the same time it feels like it's a lot more universal as well like everyone shifted or a large amount of people shifted to being at home whereas that, that's it will right. be a lot more gradual and and person-based Yes. Yeah. So send time optimization, yeah, coming out of this, like sort of the reopening process is going to be super, super helpful because you're going to find things that are happening, you know, on much more of an individual basis, you know, very like by city, by, by state, by region. Uh, It's going to be this like very sort of, um, you know, non-uniform recovery uh to you know kind of establishing a new normal so uh so definitely a lot of things you can do with open times and you know when i initially uh was like sharing out uh, some of these findings someone on on twitter had said like this this was such a great insight and that she at her company like shifted their send time by two hours and saw a huge jump in, in opens uh so definitely something worth playing around with wow that's really interesting because i've I've been a little bit of a skeptic about that technology, but I think I'm going to spend some more time digging into it, especially now. Yeah, we find that it's really easy to set up. Uh, Our clients have had really good success with it. Um, And it's, you know, there aren't a lot of things in email that are like pretty easy and have like kind of clear benefits. This is like one of those that's like very straightforward, um, not hard to set up and, and generates, you know, a significant lift, you know, kind of on an ongoing basis. And then you can, this is truly one of those technologies that you can just kind of forget about. Yeah. That, there's not a huge amount of sort of marketer input or even kind of coding or something, right? It's, it's kind of turn it on and it sorts itself out. Yes. Which is, which is nice to have one less thing to worry yes. about right now. <laughs> exactly. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. So, so open times is definitely one of the things that everyone should be thinking about. Uh, I would say so other things that we've seen is that we've seen email volume dip a little bit overall. Um, but again, uh, this is a case where it really varies when we started to break it down by, by industry, you know, needless to say travel and hospitality, way so down on volume. That's the volume that's being sent, right? So, yeah. brands, so that, those that, brands aren't sending. 
Yeah. Those they're sending much less. Okay. They're still sending. And we definitely recommend that even if you are shut down, that you find topics to send about. Otherwise you're gonna have to re rewarm up your IPs and your your sending domains. Um, which according to our deliverability folks takes like two, three weeks. So you like to not have that happen. So try to find something, a reason to, to reach out, you know. Mm. That's every, interesting. I had someone raise that, so. raise that a while ago and they're kind of, you know, discussing like, you know, obviously whatever, a travel brand, there's nothing to talk about in some, to some extent, right? But you're right. Like the deliverability and the kind of technical aspect is a good reason to send something, even if it's just a, hey, we're here for you or whatever. Here's our tips for making food at home or, or something, you know. Something, you know, and I, I realize that, you know, I, I keep going back to travel and hospitality because I feel like they've been so heavily affected. Um, you know, sure, they can't really book anything right now, um, but people's intent has not disappeared, right? Yeah. People still aspire to travel. There's still places that they want to go on the other side of this. Um, so there are opportunities to make sure that like those leads don't go cold to like yeah, keep, yeah. keep those, you know, keep those leads warm, keep that intent high. Um, you know, so there's, there's things that you can do, but I certainly acknowledge that it's, that it's tricky. Um, so anyway, uh, so Volume way down for those folks. Uh, volume for financial services is like pretty level, and uh, volume for retail is like eh, up like a smidge. Um, uh, so you know, again, definitely varies by industry, but but overall volume is down because of businesses being shuttered and industries that have uh, you know kind of gone fa fairly dark. Uh, that said. Um, engagement with email that is being sent is up. Um, and that sort of makes sense. Uh, a lot of people um, have a bit more free time on their hands. Um, they're also, you know, looking for kind of solutions to problems, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, entertainment related problems or food and cooking related problems or, you uh, you know, problems related to their children. And I say problem, but like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, your yeah. challenges, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like we've certainly, you know, we, we have a, an eight and an 11 year old at home and we've mm -hmm. certainly uh, been, you know, having, you know, uh, you know, it's been sort of a priority to make sure that we kind of keep them uh, actively engaged and entertained. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, that's not easy. So there's like, there are issues that people have that, you know, challenges that people have that, you know, e email can be a solution for. So yeah, engagement has been up. Um, the revenue situation, like revenue per email, we saw a pretty significant dip uh, late March into early April, but a lot of that seems to like it's recovered more okay. recently. So, you know, it's, it's good to kind of keep in mind that, you know, some of these trends may not hold and like things are fluid. Um, you so know, do you think that uh, was a bit of kind of people taking stock of the situation and maybe dealing with the immediacy of it? And now people have got used to it, that spending has gone up a bit more. Yeah, I think, you know, that was the term I keep using is that it was a systemic shock, right? Okay, like, it was yeah. just, like this sudden widespread, you know, shock to the system. And when you encounter things like that, what do people do? Like they, they 
they bunker up, they get defensive, like they don't spend on things that they don't have to spend on, right? Yeah. Because they're not sure if they're going to be laid off or furloughed or they're not sure what's going to happen, right? So why, like, why, you know, risk, uh, you know, spending money on something that you don't need to? And so I think that's a lot of what we saw in late March was there was this kind of pulling back, um, to kind of you know you know build up you know a little bit of savings. Mm. Uh, certainly here in America, we are notoriously poor savers. Mm. Uh, so I think you know it's part of what we saw. You know here is that you know people wanting to like build up a little bit of a you know rainy day fund. Yeah. Um, but now people are. It seems like that's sort of rebounding. It feels like the UK is is in line with that. Like we're we again um we're not great at saving. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of a Western society yeah. <laughs> problem for Get sure. Get money, spend it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's what we saw initially. And now it seems like that's at least returning to normal. Um, but we'll, we'll see how that trend continues over time. Uh, one of the other really kind of rather surprising things that we saw uh, was that unsubscribe rates are significantly down, like in half. Hey. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, in mid-March, when everyone was sending out all of their coronavirus, you know, update emails, there was a little bit of like a GDPR feel to it where like everyone was like, why the heck is this company emailing me? I haven't like heard from this company or done anything with this company in like three years. There was a lot of negative social media chapter, uh, chatter about all of these emails. And, um, and so you might've thought like, oh, that's going to like drive people to unsubscribe, but we're, our data is not showing that at all. And I think our reasoning is that, um, again, people in general have a little bit more time on their hands or they're a little bit less hurried. Um, and so, you know, people are not, you know, trying to, to kind of like cut back on email in the way that they were when they were like really busy and they're like, Oh, I know I signed up for this, but now it's kind of annoying. Now they're like, Oh, I know I signed up for this, but yeah, now I have time. Like, so yeah. it's, so yeah, they, they got more bandwidth. Yeah. Like unsubscribe being driven by, um, Oh, I'm too busy for this. I just don't want to see this email again. Like that, that sort yes. of has gone and people, even if they just skip over it, they're less stressed out by getting an email, I suppose. To, yep. to be dramatic yeah that's <laughs> that is our reasoning that's that's how that's we're explaining it and that that seems to make a lot of sense yeah you mentioned the, the the ceo email let's talk about that just for a second i know a lot has been written about it and i think to your point i think you're right a lot of that is kind of twitter complaining rather than actual actions happen there like <laughs> there's a lot of people saying oh the ceo of some company i didn't i bought something from three <laughs> yes. years ago like they got lots of likes on their tweet but they didn't actually unsubscribe like <laughs> fine fair enough whatever you can bend them and that's what twitter's for sometimes but i think to kind of marketers defense like one it was a very tumultuous time and secondly i think they were being overcautious. like i actually appreciated emails from quite a few brands and obviously i work in email but aside from that when a, a large amount of this stuff was happening i was abroad in the states and i appreciated a lot of emails from like the airline that i was flying with saying okay here's what you need to know today that i w i wasn't complaining about receiving an email with practical information and i think some of the brands just literally wanted to get that out to as many people as possible um and some of them were a bit overzealous and i think some of the kind of hey here's our, our ceo's opinion on this is yeah perhaps they overstepped the mark but but broadly, I think it was it was more noise complaining than an actual genuine grievance. 
Yeah, I think it was it was a little bit mixed. I think what, yeah. part of what you're saying is very true. I think if um, I think the fact that these emails, for the most part, uh, were highly non-promotional, I think that that gave brands a little bit, like it allowed them to get a little bit more forgiveness. Yeah. But I do think at the same time that brands should have done a much better job in um, building a suppression list. <laughs> yes, there was there was a lot of um, oh, this is servicing and we can mail everyone. We don't need yeah, to subscribe so like, that kind of stuff. Right. Because there wasn't any promotional language in these emails, mm. um, people tended to categorize them as transactional emails. And they saw that as like, oh, everyone likes receiving our privacy policy updates. So let's <laughs> send out uh, this email. It's also transactional. So it'll be OK. Like, but no, like everyone hates <laughs> hates those you know, privacy policy updates, they don't read them. Um, maybe they don't unsubscribe because of it, but like, it almost seemed like they were just trying, you know, to do a little bit of like reactivation, trying to get at some open rates. I, I feel like they, I feel like it, there were, there were brands that abused that yes. maybe not totally intentionally, but like, it, I don't think it was executed that well yeah and uh, our deliverability people pointed out that like hey look even uh you gotta you gotta keep in mind that you know the deliverability side of this too you, you send out an email like that just like those privacy policy emails tend to you know cause deliverability issues uh these these coronavirus emails could also be causing issues like that yeah. so you, you got to be a little bit more mindful i mean i think people's hearts were more or less in the right place but <laughs> I, I don't think it was smart how it was done but you also mentioned like you know these emails from ceos and yeah. I, I did want to point out that uh, i think it's great to have ceos and presidents write these emails i think it sets the right tone the right level of seriousness i think it gets you in the right headspace mm. but nobody cares about an yes. email from your CEO. So <laughs> I saw a lot of brands putting that in the subject line or even in the preview text. And I don't think people don't care about your CEO. They care about themselves. And I think that a lot of brands really lost sight of that, that, you know, what's in it for me? You know, what about my, my issues? Talk to me about what I need to know. And don't tell me that you've got an important message from your CEO. Like nobody cares. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I feel like we, we missed the messaging game there quite heavily. Um, but, you know, have it be from your CEO, just don't put that in the subject line. You know, the subject line, the preview text needs to talk to the recipient, you know, connect with them. Um, no one's like chomping at the bit to talk to your CEO. That's not, that's not doing it for them. Yeah, exactly. Like there are, there were a lot of genuine messages, you know, but just say our restaurant is now closed or whatever. Like that's the information you want in the subject line, not here's an update from our CEO. <laughs> like it, it doesn't do anything. This episode of Email Talk is sponsored by Taxi for Email. If you're an email marketer, you need Taxi. We help everyone on your team make their best email. Designers and developers build awesome email design systems with Taxi. They build out their best HTML, then they use Taxi syntax to precisely set out how it is then used by content writers, so you can give them the flexibility they need whilst keeping everything on brand and keeping your code intact. Copywriters in Taxi focus on content and not code. They write directly into the email, so they're creating everything in context. 
That means you can create better content that engages people more and ultimately gets you better results. If you're a marketer, you can dig into things like segmentation, personalization, managing link tracking, making multiple versions of things, and most importantly, you can see what everyone on the team is doing and help them along their way. And once you're done, you can sync Taxi with whatever platform you use to send email. If that sounds good, we'd love to show you more. Go to taxiforemail.com and hit request a demo so we can chat about how Taxi can help your team create their best email. I think one thing that Kate uh, Pina said that was kind of interesting was sometimes as marketers, we project ourselves into our work. And I wonder if there's an element of that happening there. So kind of the marketers were either, you know, happy or excited about working with the CEO. And they kind of took that as like, hey, you know, like they felt that it was more value than perhaps a, a, a user might do. And that's why it got a bit more prominence. I wouldn't, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. I, I wonder if, um, I wonder like how I would interpret it maybe mm. is that um, like when, when Larry Ellison, mm. you know, like sends out an email to everyone at Oracle, like, like the, the, the titles like matter, for, like internal business communications. And yeah. I wonder if that's the disconnect is yeah, that that's true. it matters, it matters there, but it doesn't matter outside. Yeah. Right? So it's like an internal email that leaked outside almost. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that would be my guess at like where that, this idea comes from that like, oh yeah, like everyone cares about the CEO. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, inside your company. Mm. Yeah. It's super important if, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if Stafford Katz like sends out a, an email, like, yeah, I want to, I want to make, I want to make sure that that's like super clear. Like that's from the CEO. I need to open that. If Larry Ellison, you know, you know, emails everyone like, yeah, I need to absolutely need to read that. Um, but I think that when you, that it that doesn't translate into the B2C world. Like, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. And did you find anything around mobile usage? I've had a few people ask about this and I'm, I'm kind of drawn on it. Like I still get the feeling that people are using mobiles at home, but have you found any information on that? So this was probably the most surprising finding for us is that we were sure that like, oh, people are stuck at home. They're definitely like reading emails more on desktops. Right, yeah. And that does not appear to be the case <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> at all. We Some of our data did show us a slight shift to tablets mm. over smartphones. That makes but sense. It, but honestly, it was like pretty small. And so our, our takeaway is that the uh, email habits are just super hard to change. That if someone is used to checking their email on their phone, even if even if they have a laptop sitting next to them, they're just you know it's 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 you know it's it's unconscious thing where they're just going to pull out their phone and flip through their email. Um, and so I think the I think that's the big takeaway there is that 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 behavior is not going to change, uh, even though people are not checking their email, you know. Yeah. on the train anymore so the laptop's still on the desk it's not moved over to the sofa that is still if you're on the sofa it's still on the phone yeah well that people have like certain things they do on certain devices yeah. and you know they may be like um yeah they're doing certain things on a desktop but like apparently email for a lot of people is just like a thing that you do on mobile <laughs> and so well, even if they have a laptop nearby they're not gonna not yeah. going to change. That's good to so, know. I mean, it's good justification for, for still making sure things work on, on mobile right now. 
Yeah, but again, I think I would I would caution people like this is one that kind of makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. right? So I think this is one of those things to like spot check, mm-hmm. you know, in your own analytics and make sure that that's right and that there hasn't been a shift because, you know, we've been seeing, you know, some clients, you know, get to the point where they have so many mobile openers that they've been, you know, have either moved to like sort of a mobile optimized email template or are thinking about it. And if that's the case where you have like 90% of your opens on mobile, uh, you might want to just like spot check that and make sure that you don't need to roll back to a responsive email design. If you had gone to like, like a mobile only, um, I think, so it's like in a case by case basis, it kind of depends. Like if you've, if you're, if your emails are responsive, then you're fine, right? Mm. You've got that flexibility. But if you if you saw so many of your subscribers on mobile that you wanted to simplify your email production workflow by going to a mobile-only design, um, you might want to like just double check that and make sure that you know that that's still a smart decision yeah. right now, and that you know you might want to roll back. That's interesting. I wonder if it as well. So. In the, the breakdown of whether people are using mobile tablet or or whatever desktop slash laptop to view email, and I think Litmus published this a, a while ago in one of their reports. The big time that it changed was about 2012, 2013, where basically most or a large amount of people shifted to having their first smartphone or the sort of iPhone four, uh, Galaxy two, that kind of time, and there was a big jump over you know a year or so to a lot of people shifting their behavior to using mobile smartphones for email. And then there have been gradual changes since then, but it has been very gradual. And I wonder if, as this thing goes on, for how long it does go on, um, you know, if, for example, it was like it is now for entirely, for like a year, whether there would be a more gradual change, but still over the year, it would be still quite a, a big change, or whether it will stay as it is now. It's possible. I mean, so far, the numbers haven't budged much. So it seems like I'm inclined to say that it's a pretty entrenched behavior. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, who knows, right? Like, uh, you know, I think in the in the short term, it's hard to change behaviors that weren't already changing. Yeah, um, that's true. And so, like, it seemed like it had been like a, in a kind of a steady state. So mm. it's, I think it's hard to nudge those kinds of behaviors. Uh, so, like, you know, with with that said, uh, the thing that I'm finding interesting now is to look at behaviors that were already like trending before all of this happened. Um, so, like, kind of uh, uh, kind of beyond email itself and just sort of broader behaviors that are important. Okay. So, so what, what for kind instance. Of stuff that- yeah. So for instance, like the shift to like buying online, okay. um, right? Like that was, that was already a trend where more and more, you know, commerce was shifting online. And now of course it's gotten a huge push. And so a bunch of people that were just dedicated store folks, right? They, they just wanted to buy in store and they're happy to get emails and stuff, but they weren't interested in buying online, you know, and they're, just a pretty significant group of people out there like that, that just, they like going to stores. They like touching things, seeing things. Uh, now they don't have that option, right? So there's going to be a bunch of like, you know, sort of first time online buyers. Um, and, you know, are you making sure that they have a great experience? Are you making sure that you're sort of walking them through, you know, how the process works? Um, what are the benefits? Um 
you know, so that you can retain them as, you know, as multi-channel shoppers. Uh, same kind of thing with curbside pickup. That was like a very small uh, trend, but certainly gotten a big shove now. So I'll be curious to see if all the folks that are offering curbside pickup, if all that gets rolled back or if some retailers keep it. Um, food delivery, that was a growing trend. Now I've got a bit of a, a bit of a big push as well. Um, so we've got a lot of like first time behaviors that are being um, kind of broken down uh, where people who are reticent to participate in certain activities now are. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how much of that sort of stuff sticks. And I think that, you know, again, trends that were already in place, uh, I think a, a lot more of that will be retained. Um, the other thing that, that's really interesting, we, we have um, uh, our Oracle Data Cloud uh, offerings. We have a bunch of data on all kinds of things <laughs> uh, here at Oracle. And we've been looking at, uh, at like purchase data. And we've been seeing a lot of really interesting trends around how people are shopping and the brands that they're buying. Uh, and there's tons of like first time tries there as well uh, because of out of stocks, right? So out of stocks has probably been like one of the most pervasive stories about the pandemic so, so far. So what's happening there? So is that stuff that's unavailable? Yeah, so stuff that's unavailable, and it's and it's forcing two really interesting behaviors out of consumers. The first is that they're trying many more retailers than they had used before, right? Okay. Like you tended to have like your one grocer, yeah, right. And I mean, I don't know about you, but like we now get groceries from like <laughs> six different sources, whereas before it was like two. Right. Now yeah. We got six yeah. uh, to get all the things that we'd like to get and not knowing what's actually going to come through. Or yeah, I've definitely done that, especially less so with groceries, but more like I've been kind of trying to rebuild my office at home um, mm -hmm. and things like getting a webcam, you know, that kind of stuff. You usually just go, yeah, Amazon, fine, it's done. Um, but mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's not on Amazon anymore. And yeah, you're digging around trying to get stuff from all sorts of different places. Yes. So there's been a, a very significant jump uh, and folks trying out new retail brands, so new sources mm. of products. And then hand in hand with that is that there's also been a very significant jump in people trying new brands. So, you know, you know, toilet paper, I think, is sort of the archetypal <laughs> example. Like, you know, everybody has, like, their favorite toilet paper brand. Yeah. And you needed to get over that because <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, like, yeah. so you're trying something new. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that's been happening across, like, a pretty wide expanse of products that you, I can't get, like, my favorite flour anymore because nobody can get flour anymore. So you're, you're trying something else or whatever it might be. Like the, the supply chain disruptions have been so vast uh, that people are just, they're trying a bunch of like new brands for various products across a variety of verticals that, um, because they still want to get like the things that they want, um, but it's unavailable and they're like preferred brand. So I think the interesting sort of takeaways there for marketers is that uh, it is a time to think about how can I lock down new customers, yeah. you know, as we come out of this, how do I can retain some of those folks who were trying me for the first time uh, for the incumbents? It's about, okay, how do I maintain loyalty and get more, you know, get 
more of that business back from what used to be loyal customers so they don't wander off to other folks. And then on the product side, um, I think that in terms of our, our targeting and personalization efforts, our dynamic content efforts um, to really uh, kind of recalibrate um, around brands because people are going to find some new brands that they quite like. Yeah. And so their brand preferences might shift. And so retailers need to be like aware of that if they're, they sell like a wide variety of brands, if like, you know, you're a, uh, uh, a mass uh, retailer, um, that some of those consumer brand preferences are going to change in perhaps meaningful ways. And so are you able to kind of cater to those shifts and make sure that you're recommending sort of that new favorite brand that someone may have discovered during all of this? That's interesting. So, there's a couple of things there. So one thing is, you know, perhaps audit your welcome sequence, like, and, and make sure it's got some brand building stuff in there. Because if these people are potentially, they're quite cold, they're kind of, they've just unfortunately come to buy from you because you're the only person who's got something in stock so if you've got a welcome sequence you really want to be bringing them around and saying hey you know here's here's the reason to stick around sort of thing maybe some work to do there which is kind of interesting because quite often when we're doing welcome sequences we we tend to be quite sort of process driven i suppose yeah i think there's a little bit of an opportunity for brands to selectively sort of reintroduce themselves yeah. to certain segments of their audience. You know, again, so I mentioned like, you know, folks who were dedicated like in-store purchasers and now that's not available to them. So they're buying online for the first time. Yeah. There is an opportunity there to really make sure that they're welcomed, you know, into this side of your business, like, and like a really nice way. Like they may have been like a customer of yours for years, but they've never purchased online. And so almost treating them like a brand new customer is sort of walking them through the benefits yeah. uh, can be very important. I also saw an example from, uh, I believe it was West Elm where they were kind of reinforcing like their like product quality. Um, and I thought maybe that was in response to the fact that like, well, people can't go to a store now and like touch the furniture and, you know, really get a sense of like, oh, this is like really nicely made. And like, they can't see in-store signage about like how the wood is sustainably grown. Like, you know, so they're trying to kind of replicate some of that messaging, uh, whether it's, you know, physical messaging or sort of inferred messaging in the store, trying to take that into the email and talk about, you know, how like their product is like really high quality and this is how they do quality checks and this is how they source materials and these are the kinds of materials they use. Um, there's opportunities to sort of do that kind of re-education uh, now that you don't have all of your channels working together. That's, uh, that's a big opportunity, isn't it? Like, yeah, really think about what that tactical store experience is like and really put it through online. Um, there's a couple of brands that we've seen in the UK that are, Interesting. So one is Primark. I think, are they in the US? I think, well, yes. memory, I've seen them in, in like Boston or somewhere. Um, yeah, here on the East Coast they are. Okay. And so the thing with Primark is they're very much a, an offline business and they, their model is is pretty cheap price point for clothing. Um, and you, you buy from them, but they have these massive stores and it's, it's high volume, I imagine low margin, but lots of lots of turnover and they have no online their online presence is basically his a, a store finder you know maybe a bit of brand story mm -hmm. 
and I've seen quite a lot of discussion about what do they do now? Like, do they just ride it out and kind of basically shut down and come back when people are walking around in the physical space more? Or do they try and pivot to, to e-commerce? How do they do that? Do they just pick their most profitable lines or the most popular ones? Like, that's a, a massive ask for organizations that aren't already doing some kind of e-commerce to adapt very quickly and then be able to do fulfillment and to even get their stock out of the stores and into a warehouse is a huge undertaking. undertaking. So there's, there's a lot of work for some brands to do. Or, yeah, or some big choices at least. For sure. Yeah. Now we're seeing some of our clients react differently to these challenges. Some are taking it as like like a like like a challenge, right? To like, oh well we were doing some business online, but right, now that's like our best channel right, <laughs> that we have yeah. available. <laughs> How can we make it just amazing? Yeah. How can like and some people are like enthusiastically like embracing that challenge. So like it's it's for some people it's like for some brands it's really focused them on like, hey look, this was already important. Now it's super important. All right, what can we do? Let's build a plan to just make this experience as great as it can be. But then there's other brands, uh, you know, maybe some that like are slightly in like, you know, not the best like financial position where they're, you know, they're ringing the alarms and they're pulling back as much as possible. Um, and I think that that's sort of the, the other element to this is that not only are different verticals being affected differently, but, you know, different companies are being affected differently based on sort of their, uh, their financial situation and sort of like their attitude. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, so it, it really, I think if, if, if you leave with anything is that everybody's being affected wildly differently, even within verticals, because, you know, every company is unique, which is something that, you know, within Oracle consulting, we try to really embrace is that everybody's is, is running a unique business. You know, even if you're in the same vertical, you have different priorities and different partners and different goals, like everybody's different. And so I think it's, it's important to not lose track of that, but I do think there are opportunities here. There's, there is a silver lining. You can find it. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, some people are embracing that and other people are, you know, are, are, are not, uh, yeah. for, you know, various, you know, legit reasons. It's a, it's a good time to be a marketer really, because we, uh, we have a, a real opportunity to, well, to shine <laughs> apart from anything else, but to, to demonstrate our skills and to actually, you know, that there is a change going on, whether you like it or not. So we need to adapt to it and help our organizations navigate through it. And we're at the kind of front of that, especially yeah, at this I think yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the way I think about marketing, it's about it's about serving customers, right? Like, if you just boil it down to like its base layer, it's about serving customers. I, I like having a service-minded approach to marketing, right? You're trying to answer, uh, you know, your customers' questions. You're trying to fulfill their needs by presenting the right products. Um, you're trying to help them with, you know, great content, you whatever it might be like you're, you're, it's about service. And, you know, that component has, that, that need has not gone away. People still need help uh, with various things. Right. And so I think the, the challenge is that like some of those needs and wants and desires have, have shifted. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, people being, uh, empathetic 
And I think that that's really kind of code for, you know, make, making sure that you're like aligned with your consumers, your customers and what they want. And so I think you need, you need that every single day of every single year. Uh, but right now it's definitely a moment because it's shifting, right? Those needs and desires are shifting. So we need to get, we need to make sure we're, we're still aligned with, uh, with our, our audience and that we're providing the best service and value to them that we can. That's a, a great overall piece of advice. And I suppose we're in, a, we're in a good channel that's well placed for that because we do get a lot of data as well. You for know, sure. We get a lot of uh, and pretty quick data so we, we can act quickly and we can understand how the, how the marketplace is moving, which is yeah really vital <laughs> in this, this day and age. Yeah, analytics has a, has a strong role to play right now. I was talking with uh, with Doug Sindal, one of our uh, our strategists, and we were sort of batting around this idea of like analytics powered empathy. You know <laughs> that like you know empathy is sort of like the heart to heart connection, but you can use analytics to then kind of match up the the data about what's really happening and sort of like you know quantify these needs. So I, I rather like that and That's analytics good, powered empathy. Yeah, that would be an interesting discussion. Kind of empathy at scale powered by technology is a really interesting area, isn't it? There's a lot to dig into there. I think that's what we should be kind of yeah. focusing on again, like sort of every single day, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but right now in moments of like shift uh, and disruption, it's, it's super, it's even more important. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's really great. Thanks for that. That's actually helped focus my mind on, on what we should be doing a lot more around this situation. So that's been, that's been really useful. What I want to do just to finish up is really just talk about a little bit about you, really. So one thing I've been asking a few people, and email is this kind of imperfect medium, and I quite like it that it's imperfect, but also sometimes it is a huge pain in the ass, unfortunately. <laughs> um, like, it's, it's quite a belligerent medium, I think. And part of that is its openness, but also its openness is one of its main strengths. So it's, it's, you know, it's this it's kind of unbounded, I suppose, um, and, you know, rough, rough edged medium. So is there one piece of this channel that like you could change? Like what, what would it be that if, if you think, oh, I really wish we could change this, what would it be? Yeah. So, so first, I totally agree with you. The thing that I love most about email and what makes it really unique is that nobody owns it. Mm. Right. So it has multiple masters. And because of that, no one can change it too radically. Like its core has to stay the same. And that's what makes email really cost effective. Yeah. Right. Like if one entity owned it it would be way more expensive yeah and we've seen this like, in social right yes i was gonna say it would turn <laughs> into kind of a facebook situation yeah. um where you wouldn't be able to trust the data and you'd be you know overspending mm. <laughs> you know and so i'm eternally grateful that we don't have that situation i, I would feel uh better if we had like a, if actually things were fractured a little bit more than they are right now things okay. have like really started to kind of um uh, concentrate a bit around, yeah. you know, kind of a handful of big players, but yeah. it's still enough. It's still enough. Uh, so the, the great thing about that is that it keeps costs down, but mm. the two big trade-offs that we have are inconsistent rendering and inconsistent deliverability <laughs> that there's two rules there. Those are the two big downsides to email marketing because of this open platform. Mm. And so if I had to change one thing, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to like consolidate things, but I would love it if more of the big players 
could agree more on standardization around code support. Uh, I understand like there's code support around the fringes that can be different, but it seems like um, we could firm up the middle a bit more. Yeah. Uh, it seems kind of silly to me, some of the differences uh, in code support that there currently are across email clients. <laughs> it seems like there kind of shouldn't be. Yeah, and I'm still like, you know, totally not in the pro amp camp. Uh, you know, I, I like, you know, I think it's going to be successful. Um, but at the same time, like I wouldn't have minded if Gmail had supported, uh, CSS based interactivity, like that would have been, that would have been nice and it would have made, you know, the email experience much more consistent. Um, and easier for marketers. I know that that's never a goal <laughs> for any of the players, but uh, you know that would be nice. I would yeah. love to see more consistent code support. That's interesting. I think we're getting to a point of consolidation. Like if you look at the, the sort of email client market share that Litmus put out, there's a large. I think it's the top four are double figure percentages, and the rest are single figure. And it tails off. You know, by the time you're at the 10th email client, it's like 2%. So we are achieving some consolidation, but it's not through the email platforms or email clients talking to each other and coming up with a standard. It's just that this one's the most popular and most people are on it now. So mm-hmm. we we can just code for that. And that's still not ideal, right? Like it's not the best. It's just that there is an okay thing that we can expect works just because most people are there. So yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot more that we could do there. And there is still, unfortunately, this long tail of pretty obscure email clients that have fairly significant issues. But if you're mailing to, we've got a couple of clients, they mail to like 10 million people. 1% is still a large amount of people. So you, you do have to work into rendering issues for quite in-depth amount of the audience. Yeah, no, some better standardization would definitely help there. Mm. But again, I... I uh... You know, I appreciate the long tail a little bit because it, it keeps some market share out of the hands of yes, exactly. <laughs> of the top guys. So yeah. I think, you know, the more that it's distributed, the better yeah. in terms of like the stability of email. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, the, the long tail definitely causes development issues for sure. It did used to change around the world, but it has consolidated even then now, um, you know, yeah. like it used to be that there were so Germany has its own email client and Russia and all these different places that were the most predominant one, but it is unfortunately moving towards mostly iPhone, mostly Android, mostly Gmail at this point, which makes code a bit easier, but not, not ideal. Cool. So let's catch up on your three things then. So remind me, what was the first one? I've got I've got bonsai. That's the one that's stuck in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the three were, I previously worked for two book publishers. Okay. That the first book I ever wrote was about formalist poetry, and that the last one was the book that I'm currently writing is about bonsai. Okay. I'm going to go with the bonsai. I I feel like that would be a great book, but there is a huge amount of things going on right now in the world, and I wonder if you have the time to do a book about bonsai. I'll, I'll be happy if you do that. <laughs> yeah, so that's that one is not true. Oh. <laughs> Maybe an ebook or uh, just a webinar or something. But but I am writing uh, a science fiction book. That oh, is wow. my 
that is my side hustle at the moment. Uh, so I am writing a book yeah. uh, that's not about email. <laughs> it is not about bonsai. <laughs> yeah, that, I feel. Do you find that writing is like a, a good distraction? You know, like a different headspace to get into. Uh, I have actually found it very, very challenging to <laughs> get out of my current headspace to uh, to get into writing on my book it's uh so my writing has slowed down <laughs> since mid-march um but i'm, I'm trying to trying to kind of get back into the groove yeah um, it's, uh, there's, there's definitely a big adjustment going on i'll give it that yeah i find i work better when i'm relaxed mm. and relaxed is not how i would describe myself in recent weeks yes <laughs> that's, that's very true um okay well thank you for uh, for joining us last thing really is uh where can people find out more about you? Have you got, got anything to plug apart from a, a science fiction book on the way? Yeah, so the best uh, way to get uh, in touch with me is through my website, Email Marketing Rules. You'll be able to find me on uh, the social platforms there and uh, find ways to connect with me. So that's, that's the one source. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks very much, Chad. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Chad for joining us. We've got lots more to come on Email Talk. You can find us on your favorite podcast player and also at emailtalk.co. There's two things you can do to help us. If you can, we'd love you to leave a review or rating on iTunes. And also please share this podcast with other people that you know who work in email. Thanks and we'll see you next time.